0: I want to talk to you tonight, and then we're going to pray about um, Ezra the Reluctant Revivalist. Ezra the Reluctant Revivalist. I grew up in South Africa, and uh, my accent is not quite as cool as Sam's, but it does make me sound smarter than I am. But just next to South Africa is a little mountain kingdom called Lesotho. And you say that with me, Lesotho, it's, it's run by a king and it's very mountainous. You have to take four wheel drives to get there. And I was part of a missions team and we went and joined a church up in the mountains for a week long revival fast, which is also depressing. You're praying for revival in a tent much like this, not as cool, and you're not eating and you're longing for the presence and the power of God to come. And I was uh, 18 years old. I was longing for revival. I didn't know what that was. But all I will say is at the end of a week of hunger, preachers shouting very loud, (laughs) slamming big Bibles on the pulpit, praying very loud, I felt quite far from God. And I have to say I was scarred by that week. I became cynical about revival. And I think that's because often when it was talked about, it felt a little bit more like a wave pool rather than a real wave. I don't know if you've ever swum or surfed in a wave pool. Uh, It's it's very cool, but it's very human-generated. It's real fake. And it lacks the majestic creative power of a real wave. And I think very often in in, in circles in the church that talk about revival, it feels like there's a whole lot of human energy going in. You just go, it's cool, but I just don't know where God is. And we want the wave. Remember a famous American evangelist coming through town a couple years later, and this guy was just, famous for being powerful, he was going to bring revival to our town, and there was an altar call at the front, and literally, I mean, there probably were a hundred people at the front, and he went up and down, like slamming people on the head, and they were just going down like flies, you know, sack of potatoes, and I was incensed by the sense of force, so, you know, I'm a rugby player, I'm pretty strong, I just tensed my legs, you know. I was like, I want the power of God. I don't want your power. And I was the only guy left standing in the whole room. It was embarrassing. (laughs) Absolutely embarrassing. What I love about Ezra is that he is a reluctant revivalist. And the story of Ezra very, very quickly is that Israel is in captivity in Babylon. They're in exile. And the Lord moves the heart of the king and he moves the heart of Nehemiah, the governor, the cupbearer to the king too. And, and the heart of a scribe, a scribe called Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the scribe lead this remnant back from Israel actually financed by the king, this Babylonian king to rebuild the city and its ruins. And Ezra, being a reluctant leader, he calls a fast at the beginning before they make their trek. And I'm just going to read to you from Ezra chapter 9, where Ezra prays this beautiful revival prayer. It's so understated. It's a revival prayer that you and I can pray. Verse 5 And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting. You say fasting, I say fasting. With my garment and my cloak torn. And I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to the day we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities, we, are, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. To grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God. To repair its ruins and to give us protection in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I love how understated this prayer is. Grant us a little reviving. Lord, grant us some reviving in our slavery. Brighten our eyes. Just love that. I think often revival prayers are like, God is just going to come and change everything in an instant. I love how understated and I love how responsible this prayer is. Grant us a little reviving, brighten our eyes that we might rebuild the city's ruins. God is not going to do everything. He's going to grant them a little reviving and they're going to do the work. Isn't that beautiful? This is a revival prayer I can pray. It's a reluctant revival prayer, but it's full of expectation. And I just want to try and unpack some some marks of a revival people from this wonderful prayer. I think when you and I think of revival, we often imagine this crescendo of faith and volume and emotion and and altar calls, and the, the, the favor of the culture towards the church. But Mark Sayers says about revival that actually revival historically, biblically and historically, takes place at the lowest ebb of the people of God's lives. The very definition of the word revive assumes that something is almost dead and needs resuscitation. And therefore, he says, revival actually takes place when a remnant at the lowest ebb of their lives grow so desperate and begin to experience, listen to it, a contagious awakening to the presence of God. Brighten our eyes. Grant us a little reviving. He says that what happens is they experience some renewal and if God is kind in his sovereignty, that will intensify into revival. Beloved, revival is God's thing. We cannot make a revival, but we can position ourselves for a little reviving and trust that that would be Contagious. 2020, I went away in January for a writing break. And in a couple of days, I felt God stir me to write a revival primer. Ten biblical moments when God met his people at the lowest ebb of their lives, connecting it to more contemporary historical moments that were similar, and then calling people to pray for that in those ways. And I was stirred. 2020 was going to be the year of revival. I mean, it was going to be the year of like perfect vision. 2020, such a great kind of year to have revival, isn't it? I mean, it's so memorable. <laughs> and hindsight was 2020, wasn't it? I mean, it was just like... Golly, what was that? And I have to admit that having started well, I started a little pilot group with some of these wonderful folk in an elderly couple called Larry and Jan's house early on Wednesday morning, and we would gather to pray through this revival primer, and about halfway through 2020, the crap hit the fan, and we gave up praying, (laughs) And at the end of summer, one of them, I can't remember, just came and kind of got in my grill and just said, but you said that revival comes at the lowest ebb of people's lives. There's no better time than now to pray for it. And so we kind of reconfigured the remnant, began to ask that the Lord would grant us a little reviving. And I don't know what Southlands is in right now. It's not revival. But we certainly are experiencing a contagious awakening to the presence of god and it's not because we've got it all together that's for sure i think it's because there's a fresh humility and desperation you know it's not hard to pray when you come face to face with your own limitations prayer is just the overflow of a people who've come face to face with their own limitations and we found i think like you have That other meetings might be down, but the prayer meeting is up. Because people are just going, oh God, we've reached the end of ourselves. And the Lord loves that because he longs to extend to us his steadfast love. What are some marks of a revival people knowing that we can't make revival happen, but we can position ourselves for a sovereign and kind God to revive what is almost dying? Well, firstly, we find from this passage is that there can be no revival without reformation. There can be no revival without reformation. What does that mean? Revival is an awakening of the Spirit of God. Reformation is an awakening to the Word of God. And what we find in this wonderful passage is that Ezra recovers something of the Word of God. And we find that ultimately, the people's call was not to rebuild a wall or rebuild a temple. It was to be rebuilt around the word of God. Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love. This is Ezra seeing the gospel in advance. An awakening of the conviction of sin. I'm blushing. And what we find as they returned to rebuild the house, they rediscovered the law. And in Nehemiah 8, Ezra takes the law and he reads it. They'd been 70 years in exile without a temple. They'd lost the scriptures. But he reads it from a high platform. The word of God is elevated again in the people's Lives, and the law is read from morning till evening, and the people, like this prayer, begin to weep with conviction. They blush to lift their face to God. And there's a beautiful little gospel moment. We know it well. It's stuck on some of our fridges and fridge magnets, where while the people are rediscovering an awakening to sin and, 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 and the conviction of sin, as the law is read and the Word of God is raised on a high platform Nehemiah speaks the gospel over them and he says, Do not grieve. Go home to eat. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The gospel in advance. Oh God, our iniquities are higher than our heads. We blush. And yet you have reached out to us in steadfast love. That's the gospel. Francis Schaeffer said that there is no revival without reformation. That the preaching of the gospel, the elevation of the word of God is absolutely central to revival. You you study revivalists, Whitfield and Wesley and these sorts of people. It was robust gospel preaching, conviction of sin, and then the joy and the relief of the grace of God breaking in. I want to say, Radiant, one of the reasons why the church has been so divided in 2020 is that they have elevated disputable matters higher than the gospel. They have elevated disputable matters to the level of creed. And the Word of God is no longer on a high platform. My political preference, my mask conviction... My vaccine conviction, my gathering conviction, my convictions about what justice is, is often higher than the very gospel. We keep elevating pencil issues to blood issues. And God wants to say, those things are not unimportant, but they are not the gospel. And God wants the people, fine to have your convictions and your preference, but God forbid that they are creedal in importance. They need to come and find their proper place. And I want to challenge you graciously that you would be a people united by a high view of the gospel so that you can stand on the holy ground of the gospel with different preferences. God forbid that churches are gathered around the unity of masks or the unity of vaccines or the unity of political parties What does that say to the gospel? That is a middle finger to the uniting power of the gospel. A high view of the gospel. Francis Schaeffer says this. Often, men have acted as though one has to choose between reformation and revival. Some call for reformation, others for revival. And they tend to look at each other with suspicion. But reformation and revival do not stand in contrast to one another. In fact, both... Words are related to the concept of restoration. Reformation speaks of a restoration of pure doctrine. Revival to a restoration of spirit life. Reformation speaks of a return to the teachings of scripture. Revival to a life brought into proper relationship to the Holy Spirit. May we be those who know the reality of both reformation and revival. It's the first Big idea. Secondly, Reformation, sorry, Revival is a restoration of the fear of God. Oh my God, I blush to lift my face. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He has torn his garments. Revival is a restoration of the fear of God. Of a reverence for God. Holding intention the grace of God and the holiness of God. Revival is always marked by a people repenting with specificity. When revival comes and it's stirring, Christianese vagueness goes out the window. A Welsh revival was marked, it, it was known, and, and, and Sam is from Wales, it was known by that beautiful love song, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. Loving, good pub song, loving kindness as the flood. You kind of need a big beer in your hand to sing that, right? <laughs> but actually, if you study the history of the Welsh Revival, which only lasted for two years, it was marked not just by a great song, but by public confession of sin, public reconciliation of people that had had decade-long feuds, pubs closing after drunkenness. And here's the fascinating thing. Wales, a mining, coal mining culture. They said that the pit donkeys became confused because their bosses stopped cussing and they couldn't understand commands without cussing. Isn't it amazing? Revival of the fear of God. met some people that were from, from Biola and about eight years ago there was, a, there was a sweeping revival at Biola. And I was part of hosting this meeting. Thousands of students packed in and there was another speaker from New Zealand. And there was just this conviction of sin. People rushing up to the front, confessing sins that would get them expelled. And the next week I was hauled into the president's office. He said, what was going on there? And then he began to talk to me about his secret prayer for revival. He said, thank you. I'm with you. This is dangerous, but I am with you. May that be an ongoing mark of our life together. Third, revival calls for an innovative remnant. I love this word remnant. Most of our churches feel a little bit remnant-y right now, right? There's been some pruning. Some people have left. And that's hard, but we know biblically, pruning precedes great fruitfulness. And of course, we long for people, some people that have left to, to come back, but, but we look to God, the great gardener, to say, won't you do something amazing with this remnant? A remnant is a little motley crew. And this Ezra remnant was not great. They had just been found guilty of intermarriage with other nations and bowing down to their idols. They'd lost the law, as I said. They'd lost a sense of worship. They were a motley crew, but they were willing. And God said, they'll do. They'll do. Never underestimate what God can do with a willing remnant. And how God has granted this remnant a secure hold. The fascinating thing about the Ezra remnant was that they were made up of some people who knew the previous temple and others that didn't. And as the Lord revived them to rebuild, he rebuilt differently. And it was the second temple was different to the first temple. Solomon's temple was grand and luxurious. And in Ezra chapter 5, at the completion of the foundation as they rebuilt, it looked kind of clunky and humble. And there's this amazing moment where this remnant is made up of some people who knew Solomon's temple and they begin weeping. And the people that didn't know it begin rejoicing, but they are all praising the Lord. Some with lament and some with rejoicing. I want to say, Visalia, if you have a mix right now of lament and rejoicing, you're in a great space. It's okay not to be delighted about life right now. What God wants is a remnant who is willing. Some of you go, I want the old Visalia. I don't like being under a tent. I like the old barn, the mill, whatever it is. When are we going to move back in there? Some of you are saying, I don't like the Visalia that's got like this gospel constellation vision. Like we just sent out my, some of my best friends to Tulare. Tulare. What do you say? Tulare. Tulare. I like the old when we were all together, one big happy family. Who are all these weird new people? And some of you just don't know anything different. And you just think you've died and gone to heaven. I want to say, God says, you'll do. You'll do. God has always worked with a remnant that has a mix of lament and rejoicing. Trust me. As a church that is planted again and again and again, if you want to build with God, you will build with some lament. But then you'll have moments where you gather together here and you go, oh, that goodbye six months ago, that was worth it. Look at what God's doing into Larry. And there's rejoicing and weeping and it's all worship to Jesus. One of the things that we have found with our staff and our team is we've started to ask, what has God done in us during COVID that we don't want to lose. We're also meeting in a tent like you. And we're starting to ask, what does it mean after we move in to remain like a tent people? Like, let's not waste the pain. And we've got this downtown Fullerton where there's a street called Wilshire Avenue. And they've actually blocked it off permanently and called it Walk on Wilshire. Because there's all restaurant tables out there, concrete block off. You're never going to be able to drive there ever again. And I keep on saying to our staff and our team, what are our walk on Wilshire moments of like, this has changed and it's for the better and let's never go back to the old. Like, do you realize that you have permission as a remnant to build with innovation? You don't have to look the same. In fact, you shouldn't look exactly the same. I'm not talking about deconstruction of good theology. I'm not into that. I'm not talking about deconstruction of healthy ecclesiology. I'm talking about the freedom to build according to God's new design. And I want to suggest some of the things that God has done in this tent season, in this flexible season is he's removing Goldilocks Christianity from us. Too hot, too cold, too loud, too soft. I love the fact that in the tent... Elders are clapping now. In the last year, I haven't had one person come and say, that air conditioning duct over me is too cold. There ain't no air conditioning. Oh, that speaker is too loud. We've got tiny little hi-fi speakers. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no one's doing that. And I just say, as we go in, let's, let's stay that way. Like, first person that comes and moans about the air conditioner being too cold. I'm like, get out of here. There's a great church going down. God wants, in his new design, post-COVID, he wants less consumers and more contributors. I love the fact that we bring our camp chairs. I think it's sacrament. It's, it's sacrament. It's significant. We bring something to the house of God. We're not just coming to get something from the house of God. Let's find a way to keep that. I think God wants more family and less silos. I love the fact that the kids are with us and the youth are with us. And we've started kids ministry like you, but some of our kids don't want to go back because they're like, I like it there. I had the one kid say, that guy up front, he's funny. I like him. I was like, you stay here. Amen. Let the remnant be innovative. One of the things I've found, how about you, is less planning and programs and more prayer. I mean, I realize that the new programs that we started, because people said, I'll join if you have this program. Well, those people left anyway. I ain't doing any new programs to try and keep people. We will prayerfully consider, Lord, is this what you're doing? I mean, our 2020 planner, out the window. I mean, we'll plan, but we're planning differently. Much more on our knees, much more prayer than strategic, like, oh, you know, I think that's good. Let's be like that in our churches. Let's be like that in our businesses, in our families. Oh, Lord, we're planning, but we're prayerfully holding these plans loosely. What are your walk on Wilshire moments? Maybe it's a conversation you could have. Finally, doing all right? Revival anticipates an outpouring of the Spirit's power. Grant us a little reviving. And brighten our eyes that we might set up the house of God to repair its ruins. So understated, so responsible, but with such expectation. Brighten our eyes. There's one other passage in the Old Testament where someone's eyes were brightened. Any of you remember what that is? Yeah? What happened? Right. Jonathan ate from the off-limits honeycomb and his eyes brightened from the battle. Isn't that beautiful? And he got into trouble because the honey was off-limits. And I want to say, Visalia, the honey of the presence of God is not off-limits. Jesus has made a way. Jesus has made a way. I know that you are a beautifully motley crew when it comes to your theology of the Spirit. Some of you were raised Pentecostal, some of you were raised Presbyterian. And I love the fact that this church holds a spacious view of what it is to be gospel centered and spirit empowered. But I want to say, as we follow Jesus, as we make disciples, as we plant churches, as we preach His gospel, the person and power of the Holy Spirit is not an optional extra for Pentecostals. It is not a denominational badge. If Jesus, fully God... Yet fully man, lived in such dependence upon the person and power of the Holy Spirit. You read the Gospel of Luke. Jesus baptized in the Spirit. Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus tested by Satan, empowered by the Spirit, returning to his hometown in the power of the Spirit, stands up and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. If Jesus was so dependent upon the Holy Spirit, who do we think we are? If we think we can follow him without that. And it's not ultimately about the gifts of the spirit. Although those are fantastic. It's about following Jesus. Dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Saying we cannot rebuild any ruins. Unless you brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving. I wonder if there could be a fresh call to Visalia, to pursue the person and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would walk in fresh dependence upon the person and power of the Holy Spirit, that you would walk, in the words of John Wimber, not just with the theology of the Holy Spirit, but with a working model, that there would be fresh risk-taking among you, not just in your gatherings, but in, in your goings. I think part of revival prayer, and we, we're going to pray now, is, is that we lament the ruins in our culture. We look out and we say, Oh God, something has to change. And I want to give you permission to lament the ruins of your cities. If we don't lament, we just get grumpy. Oh God, something has to change. But then revival prayer like Ezra turns inwards and then goes, Oh God, our sins are higher than our heads. Not the culture, it's the church. Oh God, something has to change in me. Lament turns to repent. But we don't stay there. Like Ezra, we begin to contend. And we contend for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit's power. And we say something like, Lord, we have heard what you have done. We have heard of your great works. Renew them in our day, we pray. On every man and woman, Son and daughter, you promise on all flesh, you will pour out your spirit. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, will have dreams, will have visions. Oh, Lord, do it again. Do it again, Jesus. You will not leave your church unrevived. The promise of Jesus, and I felt reminded of this. Isaiah chapter 57, I think it is, where God says, A smoldering wick I will not snuff out until I lead justice to victory. God is too kind to not revive his church. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You are more than a smoldering wick as a church, but some of you feel like smoldering wicks. And we come to Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, the great revivers, and he says, my son, my daughter, I will not allow you to be snuffed out. You might feel like a smoldering wick, But I will fan into flame. Spirit's work. Trust in me. Amen.